I'm Dave Rubin and this is the Rubin Report. As always, guys, make sure you're subscribed on our YouTube channel and have that notification bell clicked on. And joining me today is a research fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality, and contributing editor at the City Journal, and perhaps more importantly, Mr. Critical Race Theory himself, Christopher Rufo. Welcome to the Rubin Report. It's great to be with you. What do you think about that title, Mr. Critical Race Theory? <laughs> I think it's a little bit misleading because I think a lot of the uh, proponents of critical race theory uh, would disagree with that. Uh, they would say I'm kind of Mr. Anti-CRT more than anything. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we're gonna discuss that for the next half hour and then we'll let the people decide. Uh, so really why I wanted to have you on is you're, you're one of the people, at least in the Twitter world, although now you've, you've made it to Tucker, so that's a, that's a nice bump, that has been explaining critical race theory clearly and, and honestly and openly, and it is a set of ideas that basically has infiltrated almost every part of society and has so much to do with why we're seeing such chaos at the moment and why everybody is sort of picking their set of facts or their worldview and we can't come together on anything. So I really wanna just unpack all of that with you so that my audience can understand it a little bit more because I think when you say critical race theory, people don't know exactly what it means. There's a lot of different definitions, all that. So just one thing quickly before we do that, which is how did you get involved in all of this in the first place? And then we'll take it from there. Yeah, you know, I've been reporting the last two years on homelessness, addiction, mental illness, and kind of West Coast street disorder. So this has been a bit of a departure, but it all started when I got an, uh, a, a whistleblower email uh, that said, hey, the city of Seattle is now holding racially segregated diversity trainings, uh, and the, the segregated system for white employees is called uh, interrupting whiteness and internalized white superiority. And uh, this just immediately piqued my interest. I filed a records request. I uh, forgot about it for a couple months and then got this trove of documents in that was just astonishing. And, you know, I've been following the kind of conceptual ideas of critical race theory for the last few years. Uh, but this was the first time I'd see it really implemented in a way that was crystal clear, uh, that was extremely divisive. Uh, and then once I released them publicly, it kind of took on a life of its own. And I became really the kind of key source for whistleblowers in every institution in the United States. And since then, I've had uh, more than a thousand whistleblowers contact me. Everything from the smallest school districts in middle America uh, to the highest uh, levels of the federal agencies. Uh, and they're all saying that critical race theory uh, has become the dominant ideology in these institutions. Uh, it's ripping us apart, uh, but we're scared to speak out. Uh, and that's why we're contacting you. Yeah, and that's why I thought this was such an interesting topic because you know, for the, the years that I've been doing my show, I've had on an awful lot of people who have been fighting these ideas, but there wasn't sort of a name around it. There wasn't like a way to look at it through at an institutional level. So when you're getting all of these emails from, from little institutions up to the, the big federal stuff, it's like, I've, I've been seeing these emails for the last five years. And we've been seeing, you know, Brett Weinstein at Evergreen State, what happened, and Lindsey Shepard, and, and just the litany of examples of people fighting this thing. Okay, so, Let's just do 101 here. What is critical race theory? So uh, that, that's a question with a thousand answers, but the best that I can describe it, it's basically uh, you take the Marxian dichotomy of oppressor and oppressed, 
Uh, so you have one group in society that is the oppressor, one group that is the, opp that is the oppressed. Uh, traditionally, that's been the kind of bourgeoisie and the proletariat, so it's an economic stratification. Uh, critical race theory basically contends that we're going to do away with the economic categorization for now, and we're going to essentially graft identity politics onto this Marxian dichotomy uh, so that it's no longer the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, it's whiteness and blackness, it's kind of white Americans versus people of color. Uh, so that's really what it is. It's an old Marxist idea uh, that's been repackaged with the racial politics of our time. So do you see a moment where it went from an economic theory to a racial theory? Was there just like, an, uh, like a moment that that happened or did it just slowly infect the whole thing? Yeah, I, I think you know, there's a, a many moments. It's a lineage that is a, a pretty long lineage, but if you can trace it back to the Frankfurt School, and uh, the Frankfurt School theorists, I guess now 50 years ago or more, uh, really realized that economic Marxism had its limits. Uh, they realized that it couldn't make inroads in Europe and the United States uh, because we had too big of a middle class. In the United States, you, ha you have a suburban house, you have an automobile, a washing machine, um, and people didn't really feel uh, that, that the oppressor-oppressed dynamic of social class was really speaking to them. And so the kind of Marxist theoretician said, uh, we, we're not going to make success that way. Let's figure out how we can set up a new dynamic that could be more salient. And unfortunately, this works. Uh, it, is a, it, it is something that I don't think has much basis in reality or in fact, uh, but is tremendously powerful psychologically. And you have an, our elite class has really adopted this rhetoric. Uh, that I think has no basis in their daily life, uh, but it's become a very potent weapon, a very powerful weapon that's found resonance uh, because it combines this kind of innate American discomfort about race and then weaponizes it into a political tool. Does it strike you as, as sort of deeply anti-intellectual also? I mean, that's the part that is sort of amazing to me. When you see it seep into the, the places of higher education that are supposed to be about intellectualism, and yet they're taking a set of ideas that whittles us all down to our skin color as if that's the most important thing. It seems like it's deeply anti-intellectual, not actually intellectual. Yeah, it's, it's deeply anti-intellectual and it's, it's frankly racist. I think we should call it out it's for racist. what it is. If you look at the kind of white supremacist ideology of the 1950s, which we all denounce, uh, it has the same categorization as the critical race theory ideology of today. Uh, you mm -hmm. reduce people to a racial essence. Uh, back then and today, it's whiteness and blackness. Uh, you create a group identity-based hierarchy. Again, it's different, but it's the same concept. Uh, and then these critical race theory trainings are essentially denouncing people, not on their individual characteristics, but on their inborn identity. Uh, this is something that was wrong in 1950. Uh, it's wrong today. Uh, and we should be uh, very on high alert and we should all be working together to jettison this ideology. And I think something that's really important is that if you look at Martin Luther King, the kind of, uh, the kind of gold standard of, of how we should think about the country, how we should think about a race, uh, his philosophy was deeply rooted in Christianity. He was obviously a, a preacher, uh, but it was also deeply rooted in the Declaration and the Constitution and the work of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he was a student, you can read this in his essays, he was a student of American history and realized that we had to kind of bring forward the highest ideals of the country. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the critical race theory movement, uh, they self-consciously reject the ideology of Martin Luther King, they reject the ideology of the Declaration of Independence, and they reject the ideology of Christianity wholesale. Uh, it's a different lineage, it comes from the kind of Marxist theoreticians of the 1960s, 
uh, and has no kind of resonance in our, in our kind of organic, homegrown cultural tradition. Do you see what they want to build on the other side of this? That, that's the part that is unclear to me. Like I, I get all of the bad ideas here. I think a lot of my audience, because we've been talking about this stuff forever, gets a lot of the bad ideas. But it seems to me that I can't really see what they want to build. I can see what they want to destroy, which is pretty much everything, which is what we see happening right now. Hollywood's crumbling. Our cultural institutions are crumbling. Our academic institutions are crumbling. Our political institutions are crumbling. They've infected everything. So I get the destruction phase. But do, do they even really talk about the people that buy into this? Do they ever really talk about what they will build after this? I mean, is it really going to be a world? Are we gonna have anti-white laws? Like, is that really where we're headed with this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two ways to look at that question. One is you're absolutely right. Um, critical race theory and critical theory in general is not a, a philosophy of a, a, a substantive positive. It's a philosophy of pure negation. Uh, they're arguing that they should deconstruct existing social institutions, uh, point out how they're kind of coded uh, for racial dominance and oppression, and then obliterate them. Uh, they're not clear, and this goes back all the way to Marx in the 1840s. Uh, Marx posited that we have to have the revolution, uh, we have to destroy the social order, we have to destroy uh, all of the kind of underpinnings of our society. Uh, but even Marx gave no clarity on the, what the world looks like after that. Mm -hmm. It was pure mm -hmm. utopianism. There was no concrete de plan or development or even a vision of what would happen. Uh, it's really this blind faith that if you destroy what's bad, something beautiful and good and eternal will emerge. Uh, but our history in the last 150 years globally has shown that that's absolutely wrong. Uh, when you demolish a social order, when you empower ideologues uh, that, that divide people on the basis of group identity, uh, it leads to famine, it leads to war, it leads to genocide, uh, it leads to everything that is bad in the world. And I don't see the critical race theorists positing something a substantive in there in, in its place. Uh, and I think what you can also see, the second way of looking at this, is that if you look at the kind of, uh, in practice, what emerges, look at the CHAZ. You remember the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. Uh, Black Lives Matter and anarchists took it over. Uh, they said, once we get rid of the police, once we get rid of the Seattle government, once we have our own kind of utopia, uh, we are going to set up a government based on social justice principles. And what happened? Uh, they set up racially segregated facilities. Uh, there yep. were meetings and gardens and elsewhere that were explicitly endorsing racial segregation. Uh, and it devolved into a violent nightmare. Uh, it had a, a, a homicide rate that was 50 times greater than the city of Chicago. Uh, it led to uh, the senseless death of African-American men. Uh, and mm -hmm. it didn't work. And although that's obviously a very small example, I, I think it's, a, it's an important one because it gives a kind of glimpse into what happens uh, when you demolish uh, law and order, when you demolish the existing social order and you try to replace it with a utopian vision. So one of the questions I get all the time from people is they'll say, Dave, why is it spreading so quickly? Like, it's almost as if if you weren't paying attention to this, like if you weren't watching the, the few YouTube channels about it or the podcast or whatever, you suddenly it was as if it never existed. And then one day it burst forth and now it's it's everywhere. Have you thought about that? Just sort of how it has been able to spread its tentacles so seemingly quickly, even even for the people that saw it coming for a while, it does seem like there was suddenly like a catalyst that that really exploded in the last six months. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I thought a lot about that. And, and I, I'm basing it really empirically on talking to folks in these agencies, in these institutions, 
um, who have been unable to resist it. And I think the, the explanation is really this. Uh, critical race theory, the intellectual argument of it, is constructed almost like a mousetrap. It's quite ingenious. And embedded in the premise is that if you oppose critical race theory, yeah. that's merely an expression of your white privilege, of your white, white fragility, of your internalized white superiority. And they make any resistance, any disagreement, uh, they just rationalize that as a proof that you are the thing that they're fighting against. Uh, so it's constructed in a circular way where you can't truly fight back against it. And they're using a, a very kind of bare knuckled social shaming and social kind of castigation process where if you even raise your hand in one of these trainings and say, well, you know, this is a little bit simplistic. I see it in a more nuanced way. I see it in a more complex way. Uh, you're going to be berated by at least one person in the room who says you're a racist or a white supremacist or a fascist or what have you. And frankly, most people who are, you know, working a regular job, they're raising families, uh, they don't want to take the risk. Uh, the social pressure is so extraordinary that they essentially just sit and take it. Uh, but I think what we're finding out in the last few months especially is that uh, people have had enough of it. Uh, it goes against their experience. It's tearing apart workplaces and people are starting to finally speak out. I think, you know, your show, uh, certainly Weinstein and James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckroves, they laid a theoretical foundation against critical race theory. Uh, but what I'm trying to do and what others are trying to do is trying to put that into action and actually mm -hmm. elevate some of those ideas into a position of political power uh, and fighting against critical race theory uh, in, in every institution in the United States uh, and not giving an inch. Uh, because if we allow this to essentially take over our public institutions, uh, in my view, it's the beginning of the end of our constitutional order and a system of government that has shown a steady capacity to adapt and progress uh, for nearly uh, a quarter millennia. Man, it's like everything you're talking about, it sounds alarmist, and yet it, it's the stuff that we all now know to be true. I mean, I, I've been screaming about this without having the words exactly for it. We, there was a bunch of us, you just named a couple of the people, that were screaming about it, and everybody kept saying, no, 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 it's just a bunch of college kids. That was that was the criticism I was getting, often from, you know, from mainstream media, people, no, no, it's a bunch of college kids. You, you guys are making it up. I wonder, have you, have you thought about this a little bit? Um, that it seems to me that the liberals, the good remaining liberals, who, whoever they are, there, there's not that many left because I think so many have been sort of either silenced or um, coerced into this crazy lefty thing. Um, do you sense that the liberals have any defense against this? I think this is where I have, I have a bit of a difference with some of my friends in this, where I think some of them still think the liberals have some defense mechanism against this. I simply don't believe that anymore. I think I, it's either the conservatives and in a weird way it's Trump or, or bust. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I 100% side with you. And I think that um, what we've seen in Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles, that the kind of old line liberals or the kind of moderate liberals uh, really have no ability to push back or even restrain the most extreme progressive ideologues. And that kind of experience in the last 10 years in these very liberal cities on the West Coast uh, is now being nationalized in our discourse. And frankly, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Biden is not going to offer any kind of restraint against this. It's, it's completely naive and absurd to think so. I think it's also kind of naive and absurd to think that there's some great third party unity ticket that could fight against it. Uh, the kind of brass tacks of it is that uh, kind of dissident liberals, mainstream liberals, 
Uh, they have to, to create an alliance with conservatives in order to stop this. And I'm encouraging all of my friends uh, on the center left uh, to, to move over and forge an alliance, at least on these critical issues with us, uh, within the conservative movement. Uh, because this, the bottom line is really this, uh, kind of writing an op-ed, uh, no matter how good it is, kind of appealing to civil discourse, appealing to restraint, appealing to the center, is not going to change the minds of the fundamentalists who are running uh, the kind of intellectual architecture of the left. Uh, and they have to basically make the decision. We are going to tactically align with conservatives to stop this. And I think there's precedent. If you look at the 1970s, who became the kind of neoconservatives? Uh, these were a lot of New York intellectuals uh, that were uh, liberals, uh, that were in some cases even on the very far left, and they were mugged by reality. Yep. Uh, and then they moved over to the right and became kind of prominent members of this kind of uh, big tent uh, kind of conservative infrastructure. The same thing has to happen today. Uh, and, and I'm you know, really pleading to all of those folks on the center left, um, uh, look at the actual political landscape as it exists, not as you imagine it in your hopes and dreams. Uh, let's get together, let's push back, and let's exert some actual political muscle. Chris, honestly, I don't know that I've ever been more relieved by an answer that I've ever gotten from a, from a guest on the show because, I, I, you know, as you know, that that is what I believe, and it's it's causing a certain pain point for me with a lot of what I would say is my old crew. It's the liberals that can't accept that. But do you think some of of that? The, the inability to understand the landscape as it is, not as you want it to be. Do you think the, some of the aversion to that is simply because of Trump? That if it was somebody else fighting this stuff, they could get on board, but because it's Trump, they can't get on board. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it. And you know, I'll, I'll be very honest, I've been very honest with my own views. You know, I, I didn't vote for the president in 2016. I shared a lot of the reservations that a lot of the people on the center left shared. Uh, but I, I've realized that uh, the world as it is, is a binary system. That's been our political system for almost 250 years. Uh, that's how it's going to be for the next at least 100 years. Uh, so we have to operate in A or B. And for me, it's a very simple choice. Uh, you have Joe Biden, who essentially at this point is a kind of armored carapace, uh, where he's going to bust through to the Oval Office, and then the people who are driving the movement of progressivism uh, are going to man the agencies, are going to man the the kind of facilities and push this ideology even faster. Or Trump, you know, if you have reservations about his character, I get it. If you have reservations about some of his policies, I get it. Uh, but he's come out very strongly in the last 30 days. Uh, he's denounced critical race theory by name. Uh, and he is the only politician in, 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 in the United States, frankly, that would have done it. Uh, Jeb Bush uh, would be hiding under a desk. He wouldn't want to touch this issue. Uh, and, uh, and I think that the president, for all of his flaws, is someone who's willing to stand against this. And you don't have to like your allies. You just have to recognize from a pragmatic point of view uh, that you are fighting the same battle. And when then ba that battle's won, you can go back to your separate sides. Uh, but I think that, you know, I've come to, to realize I I'm gonna be, he's, the president has earned my vote uh, specifically because of his action on these issues. And, and I would encourage folks, if they have to, hold your nose uh, and, uh, and, uh, and pull down the old lever. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so with you on that, and I'm glad that you explained it as cleanly as you did, because I think the problem with the, with the last remaining liberals is they want to write the Harper's letter, they want to say all the things, address all the problems, as long as they can say, oh, but we don't support that guy who's actually doing the work to fix the thing. So can we talk about that a little bit, that Trump is actually doing things 
to get critical race theory out of our system. And of course, he's being called a racist for it. Um, but can you talk, you, you talked to Tucker about this a little bit. Can you talk about what Trump has actually been doing and not just talking about the, the libs are all good at talking about the things he seems to be actually doing things. Yeah, the, you know, the president, uh, after uh, following some of my reporting on critical race theory in federal agencies, uh, he immediately uh, tasked his uh, OMB director, Russ Vaught, uh, to issue an executive action at his request to abolish all critical race theory trainings throughout the federal government. Uh, this is a pretty bold move. And then he followed it with a speech at the National Archives uh, where he dismembered the ideology of critical race theory uh, in, in a actually kind of surprisingly intellectual dialogue. Uh, where he called it out by name, uh, he linked it to the 1619 Project, he linked it to the riots in the streets that have been going on uh, since the death of George Floyd, and he says these are all kind of birds of the same feather, these are all uh, interlinked phenomena, and I'm going to stand against it. I'm going to essentially put myself in the breach and fight against it on principle uh, and in practice. And I think a lot of our friends on the center-left are willing to fight in principle, but they're not willing to fight in practice. And this yeah. is a, a kind of huge error. And I, I look at it like this. They were saying, we don't want Trump to fight this. We don't want him to create this executive order banning critical race theory. And I'm saying, well, okay, that's essentially saying, we, don't, we wanna keep losing because if we win a little bit now, there might be a backlash. Uh, that frankly is a, a defeatist attitude. I, I find it uh, totally untenable uh, on the level of kind of prudential politics. And I would again, encourage everyone to abandon that way of thinking and, and, and have some courage and step up. Yeah, it's one of those things I, I liken it to like, you know, the barbarians are at the gate and the one guy who's guarding the gate still, you got all the intellectuals going, ah, he talks funny and his hair's crazy. And it's like, guys, we, we got a bigger problem on, on the other side of that gate. So then after after Trump issued this uh, this speech and everything else, then he the CDC, they said they were still going to continue. Right. But then he put an end to that as well. Yeah, it's actually multiple federal agencies. I've I reported new whistleblower documents uh, from the CDAC, the uh, EPA, the Veterans Administration, and the State Department, uh, all of which are moving forward with critical race theory trainings in direct violation of a presidential order. And I think this is both a problem substantively, right? Uh, the kind of principles that are in these documents are divisive, pseudoscientific, uh, racist, uh, and, and really destructive for the workplace. Uh, but it's also a problem at the level of our constitutional system. Uh, the president is the president. He controls the agencies. Uh, and my friends and colleagues at the Claremont Institute and elsewhere have long warned about the administrative state uh, becoming the unconstitutional fourth branch of government. And I think this is another illustration of that pattern uh, where you have mid-level and even senior bureaucrats uh, basically saying we can openly defy the president uh, we're going to do what we want, even though nobody elected us and we have, don't have this power in the Constitution, uh, we're going to keep doing it. Uh, so I think, you know, in the short term, this is not a big deal. The, the OMB director will shut these down. Uh, but in the long term, on, on, on the kind of theoretical basis, this is a major problem. Uh, you have an administrative state uh, that is essentially uh, doesn't think of itself as beholden to the political order. Uh, and I yeah. think that is a huge problem. And we've got to tackle that uh, when the time comes. In effect, I mean, you're, you're talking about the deep state there when you say the administrative state. Do you make a distinction or you just don't like that phrase or? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I don't like the phrase. I, I think there's a really kind of strong body of scholarship on the phrase, the administrative state. Uh, I think the deep state uh, can kind of verge into kind of conspiratorial territory. 
Uh, so mm-hmm. it, it's a personal choice, but I, I think administrative state uh, is on much more solid intellectual footing. Uh, and, uh, and we have a, a, a long list of, of folks uh, who have done the background, done the homework, uh, done the reading uh, that I would encourage everyone uh, to look up. So let's say through this executive action, Trump is able to get this stuff out of the federal agencies. It sounds like it's still going to be a fight to do so. And who knows if that's even really possible. But let, let's just say that that kind of works. Are you worried then that what will happen is we'll have federal agencies that will have removed this stuff, but in effect, we'll just have all the private institutions, the private schools, all of our, all of our businesses, our television networks, all of these things, they will still be infected. And that infection will almost create a situation where the federal government will be unable to operate because the, the outside forces uh, won't let the federal government do what it's supposed to do. Some, something to that well, effect. Yeah, I mean, I, I would kind of contextualize it in this way. Uh, I think we've long been concerned about this for the last few years, uh, but this is the first time that we've actually got anything done about it. I think it's really substantively the first successful pushback against critical race theory on institutions, uh, but it's not the first. This is really the opening shot in a long war. And I think that we can start with federal agencies. Uh, we can start with other public institutions. Uh, we can kind of shut off the spigot of funding uh, that goes towards the university programs that are creating this intellectual framework. Uh, we can go after uh, local school districts and local institutions that are, that are funding this. And then what we do is we change the calculation for corporations that I think will adapt very quickly. What we need to do is we need to raise the cost of doing these programs. Because right now the, mm-hmm. the kind of risk management protocol for corporations is, well, we really don't lose anything by doing this, but we insulate ourselves against the attack of being a big bad mm-hmm. corporation. And so what, what they're doing is they're protecting their economic uh, kind of their economic prospects with our existing policies. And this is a way of risk management uh, for their kind of social policies and social uh, status in the world. What we have to do is we have to change that, change that formula where we, we significantly escalate the cost of doing these programs. Uh, and I think the next step is clearly a, 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 a kind of campaign of legal warfare against these programs. Uh, Peter Kersenau and others have, have, have argued persuasively that these are, constitute uh, workplace harassment, uh, that these uh, violate the Equal Protection Clause and uh, the Civil Rights Act. And I think that's the next step. And uh, I, I really think that I, I'm excited, I'm energized uh, by this initial victory. We have a long way to go, but I think that if we work together, uh, we get our heads out of the clouds and we actually fight, uh, kind of swords out on the ground, uh, I think we can win this because I think the vast majority of Americans, if they actually find out what this theory is, is advocating for, uh, would wholeheartedly reject it. Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. Do, do you think that there's sort of a micro way of fighting and a macro way of fighting? So it sounds like like Trump and what you just described there, that's sort of the macro level of we have to fight at the governmental level. But one of the questions I get all the time, especially from college people, is, well, how do I fight it just personally? If one of my friends has been, you know, just wholly brainwashed by this set of ideas, and I don't know that there's a great answer. You know, I'll tell them, well, you know, you can share some PragerU videos or some of the, you know, listen to Larry Elder or read a book by Thomas Sowell. But that's sort of all intellectual stuff in a certain way that, you know, often you're not going to get younger people to take the time to do. Have you, do you have any tricks on the micro level on how to wake people up about this? I, no, I don't. I, I actually, I, I've kind of come to the personal conclusion that 
the kind of micro level one-on-one -on -one is probably a waste of time. You find yourself hmm. like debating some dude you went to high school with on a long Facebook thread. It never goes anywhere. Uh, I think that this is really at heart an institutional battle. Uh, you have to win it institutionally. So rather than arguing with your roommate, uh, you should be kind of uh, waging a kind of sophisticated campaign against the dean of your school. Uh, and I, I think that's the way to do it. I, I think that unfortunately we're in this kind of really awful political environment where uh, in order to maintain kind of one-on-one -on -one friendship, sometimes you just have to put politics off the table. Uh, so I, I think, again, it's an institutional fight, uh, and that's really where the most progress can be made. Yeah. So I said to you right before we started that I wanted to keep this exactly to a half hour because this is the type of video that I want people to be able to say to their friends, even if what you're saying is right, that you don't want to be debating the Facebook friend. Here's a half hour video. Hopefully you got some of it. So for people that do want to explore this more and your work more, where can we send them? Uh, yeah, come to my website. It's Christopher Rufo, R-U-F-O dot com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Real Chris Rufo. Again, that's R-U-F-O. Uh, and, you know, join the fight, join the fun. I mean, we are really waging a very active campaign. We're trying to get things done. Uh, and my motto is swords out, swords up, uh, because that's what it's going to take. Chris, for real, you are fighting the good fight. And I like the fact that you're enthused about it. You know, I know even for me, like we get beaten down by this stuff. You wake up every morning and there's another thing on Twitter about another institution that failed or just like some other horrible story and it can get you down. But you got a smile on your face in the midst of this, which is actually you got to be a great, happy warrior. So. And, and I know without a shred of doubt that we're going to win. Uh, it might take time. There will be losses, uh, but we're going to win this fight. Christopher Rufo, thanks for joining us. Thank you.